This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now, here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Acts chapter 3. Last summer, I was speaking at a pastor's conference in the Netherlands and had the entire family there with me. The location of the conference was at a retreat center in a tiny village in the Dutch countryside without a whole lot to do. The biggest thing that Jamie and the kids found was to every day walk about a mile to a grocery store called Yumbo. It's spelt Jumbo, but with a Dutch you get it. Uh, the building that we were staying at had a basement with some couches to hang out on and a pool table uh, to play and a professional-looking dartboard hanging on the wall. Since no one in our family is an expert in darts, we just made up our own rules with how to track the score, who would win and who would lose, and we had a lot of fun. What we did know was that In order to win, we needed to hit the center of the target. When it comes to the preaching ministry of the local church, we must understand what the center of the target is. Too many congregations, and I fear too many preachers, are unsure what the target is, much less how to hit it. Some churches focus on the social impact that they can make together, Others gather around shared political persuasions. But the true center of a healthy biblical church is nothing less than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul summarized it best in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23. We preach Christ crucified. And so when it comes to our life together as a church and especially the preaching ministry, the center of it all is the good news of Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon once warned in his normal feisty tone, a sermon without Christ in it is like a loaf of bread without any flour. No Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home. Never preach again until you have something worth preaching. Well, I came this morning because I have something worth preaching. It's, in fact, it's my joy to preach Christ from a sermon in Scripture that already does it for me. I have something worth preaching. You have something worth singing. And we have someone worth proclaiming to this world together. And it is nothing less than Christ himself. What we see in the witness of the early church and what we hear recorded in these sermons is that Jesus was the center of it all. How do we ensure that Christ remains the center of our life together? In Acts 3, 11 to 26, we find the summary of a Christ-centered sermon, the second sermon preached by Peter in the book of Acts. 
after the sign of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and now following the sign of the lame man healed in Acts 3, we learn how these signs set the stage for sermons. Wonders made way for the word. Miracles led to the message. This sermon shows that the sign itself was never the point, but was meant to point everyone to Jesus Christ. We will outline our sermon with four points that we find first in Peter's sermon. One, the God of Israel. Two, the gravity of sin. Three, the glory of Christ. And four, the gospel of repentance. Let me invite, if you would, if you are able, to stand to your feet as we read together from Acts 3, 11 to 26, this is God's holy and inerrant word. While they clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety? We have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this... We are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer He thus fulfilled, repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. The sermon begins and also ends with the God of Israel. A crowd of people 
hurried around Peter, John, and their new friend, attempting to be close to the miracle. This man that they knew, they had never seen move, was now walking and leaping and praising God. If you missed last week, you won't know why I'm using that kind of cadence, and you should have been here. The crowd is astonished with amazement. They're rubbing their eyes in disbelief. Well, Peter saw the crowd developing and realized they, they seemed to look at, at him and John like, well, they were some kind of traveling magicians. And so immediately, he moves the focus off of the miracle, off of the man, off of him and John, and seizes the opportunity to preach and to point people Godward. The audience determined the introduction of the sermon. The audience determined where he started. As Peter addresses this Jewish group of people, he points to their own scriptures and builds from what they already know about God. Specifically, he mentions the God of their fathers. Peter identifies God in verse 13 by using the same name which the Lord introduced himself to Moses at a burning bush where he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Exodus chapter 3 verse 6. Peter shows them that this miracle at the gate of the temple is effortless for the God who made all things. With a painless breath, God carries this out. It's just nothing for the God who made Sarah's barren womb conceive. The God who spared the life of Isaac through the sacrificial ram. The God who wrestled with and blessed Jacob. Peter shows them that the same God who had always led Israel and shepherded them, was now at work among them, the God of the covenant, the God of their fathers. The God of their shared history was the one orchestrating these events in their day. He was the God of their fathers. He also reminded them of the God who had spoken Peter says in verse 18, God foretold. In verse 21, he adds that God spoke of these events through the prophets. Verse 24 repeats that these are the days that had been long foretold. The point is that Peter wants his hearers to know that the reason they see this man leaping for joy, it should not be a surprise if they just read their Bibles. This is what Isaiah had in mind when he wrote in chapter 35 of the day where the blind see and the lame leap like deer. Notice also the mention of Moses. It's a reminder to the crowd how Moses had prophesied of the day where God would raise from Israel a prophet like him, that they should listen to him and obey him. And that they might recognize that Jesus was the final prophet that Moses told of. This is the God who had spoken. And finally, Peter points them to the God who sent his servant. 
I would like that to read the God who sent his son, and that's true, but here the text is servant. And as we glance ahead now to the end of the sermon, look down at verse 26. Peter shows that God had sent his servant, Jesus, first to Israel as a fulfillment of God's ancient promise to Abraham, that God would in fact bless Israel and all the families of the earth, wanting to turn them from their wickedness. And so the sermon begins and ends with explaining this miracle by calling attention to the God of Israel, the one who had spoken in the past, the one who was again speaking in hopes to turn them from their wickedness to the true and living God. Before we move on, let's consider a brief principle. As Peter preaches to a Jewish crowd, he begins with what they believe about God. Later in the book of Acts, we will see the apostle Paul preach to a Greek group of people starting at a completely different place. When we share the gospel with someone, it's important that we meet them where they are to understand what do they believe about God at all. And then from there, build the case of the gospel from who is God to then who is man, showing how Christ has lived and died to bridge the gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness and calling them to respond. But I get ahead of myself. My warning to you is don't get ahead of yourself. Peter's gospel presentation begins with the God of Israel. The next movement of the sermon exposes the gravity of sin, verses 13 to 15. Peter operates like a physician that will not soft coat how bad the disease is. Peter, the preacher, looks the crowd right in the eye. He diagnoses how severe this condition is, the condition of their sin. And he just lists out all of the wrongs that they've done. There are three accusations that Peter brings, all concerning that day when Jesus was brought before Pilate and brought before the crowd where they yelled, crucify him. I want you to remember Peter is preaching at Solomon's porch, just outside the temple. There would have been Sadducees and Pharisees in this crowd. There would have been people that weren't in Jerusalem when this happened, people that now were there listening to his voice. Yet he holds everyone within range of his voice complicit in the death of Christ with no qualification. First, he says, you delivered Jesus over to Pilate. Now, through the scheming of the Pharisees, Jesus was handed over and tried in a Roman court as a lawbreaker, as a common criminal. The religious leaders of the day had a thirst for power and control that would not be quenched until Jesus was put to death. Peter here holds them all responsible, not just the religious leaders. Next, he says, you denied the holy and righteous one. Now here he brings up that crowd, the crowd that voted for the murderer Barabbas to be set free instead of Jesus. 
He questions how they could have denied a holy, righteous man the chance to go free. And instead, they approve of a man who was a known felon to be released. And they're all responsible. And finally, he says, you killed the author of life. Here the paradox is in full view. The evidence is overwhelming. The life taker was justified. The life giver was crucified. The life taker was set free. The life giver condemned to the cross of Calvary. The verdict is, they're all guilty. That's the verdict. Guilty. Peter acknowledges that they didn't do this on purpose. They did not know that this was the holy and righteous one, the gentle and lowly one, the teacher and miracle worker, the promised Messiah that was sentenced to death. In verse 17, Peter acknowledges they did this in ignorance. They didn't understand their Bibles. And they rejected the great blessing that God sent them as a gift to his chosen and beloved people. They, they might be ignorant about their actions, yet they are still held responsible for them. Now behind the scenes, verse 18 says that even the sin they'd committed in killing Christ was actually a part of God's plan from before the foundations of the world were laid. This is part of God's eternal plan, that even through the hands of wicked men, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be put to death. So God's saving purposes were not frustrated, not in the least bit by Israel's rebellion, but through their rebellion, God's saving purposes were fully established and fulfilled. As we think about this, this man standing on the dusty streets of Jerusalem, preaching, don't forget that this man preaching had also denied Christ. Same word. Peter had denied him. Denied his Lord in the presence of a schoolgirl out of fear. Three times he denied Christ. So I don't think the preacher is, is preaching with his finger pointed out, but also in and also up. The lesson here is that the gospel confronts our sin. It's not considered polite today to ever be told we're wrong about anything. You can post whatever you want on social media this afternoon that can be 100% false. And if someone tries to tell us that, we're offended. Because this is our opinion. We can't be wrong. And it's impolite to tell someone that they're wrong. But the gospel tells us we are wrong. Christians should get very used to being told we're wrong and to quickly apologize. 
If we look at Scripture, we see that whether we operate out of ignorance or willful rebellion against God, all have sinned and fallen short of His glory. And if we were to publicly read a list of wrongs that we've done, like Peter does here, wrongs that you and I have done, we would all flee this place. We would never want to be seen again. We would be ashamed. Why? Because we know that deep down, we also have denied the Holy and Righteous One with our actions. We killed the author of life. We are guilty. Yet, God in His great grace had a plan for our forgiveness even from the beginning. So let's now lift our eyes to the glory of Christ. Let's work through these verses 13 to 15 once again, only this time, let us be clear about who this Jesus being preached is. Peter knew Jesus. He was his friend. Peter loved Jesus. And each of these titles he places on the head of his Savior are not here by accident. Each of them grounded in the fertile soil of the Old Testament these titles of the promised one that God would send. So what joy must have been Peter's to stand in front of a group of people that he loved and to testify of the one who had saved him in order that others might come to know the salvation that is in Christ alone, that others would know and love Jesus the heart of a sermon contains a cluster of titles that communicates the idea of Jesus of Nazareth. That's what Luke calls him earlier in chapter 3. But here there's this cluster, a string of titles. First, he's called the servant of God. And with the mention of this epithet, this title, the Israelites would be reminded of the servant of God mentioned in the book of Isaiah. There are four different songs within the book of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 55, that sing and foretell of the servant of God who would come to bring salvation to his people. He's saying Jesus is that servant. The next title is The Holy and Righteous One. This label combines the Old Testament title of God, The Holy one, the, uh, applying this to Christ points out how Jesus was in fact set apart by the Father for a specific purpose. And then the mention of righteousness communicates the sinlessness and innocence of Jesus having never committed sin. No, not one. He is the holy and righteous one. And he is the author of life. The Apostle John is near Peter as he's preaching this sermon. He was there when this man was healed. And the Apostle John begins his gospel by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That Jesus, in fact, is equal with the Father. And then he says, 
in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Well, why is all of this important in the story? Because Jesus, the servant of God, the holy and righteous one, the author of life who had healed this man who could not walk, it was this Jesus who was sent by the Father as a prophet like Moses to speak the word of God to the people. This Jesus was the promised seed of Abraham who came to bring blessing to the peoples of the earth. The holy and righteous one who came to live in the stead of ruined sinners. And the servant who suffered in our place. But hallelujah, the grave was not the end. The suffering servant being buried in the earth was not the end of the story. But the author of life was raised to life again in order that he might bring life to a people dead in their sins. That's us. And this is what he has done. Brought life to people dead in sin for all who would call on his name. This is what Peter's preaching. And then finally he gets to verse 16 and it's like he just snaps out of his sermon, remembers, oh, I'm supposed to answer some questions here. I'm supposed to answer how this man was made to walk. That's also important. The most important thing is Jesus. But I also want to tell you how did this happen? Because the sign made way for the sermon. The miracle made way for the message. So how did this healing happen? It happened by faith in Jesus' name. Whose faith was it? Was it the lame man's faith? Was it Peter's faith? I think the initial time it's mentioned, you'll notice it's there twice. I think the initial time refers to Peter's faith, being led by the Spirit of Christ through the courtyard that day and seeing the man. And Peter believed that Jesus could heal him. We don't actually know if the man who was healed came to saving faith in Christ. It, it seems that he did. But what we don't want to miss is where the faith comes from. The faith came from the same place that the healing did. The faith itself, to believe, was a gift from Jesus. Paul gets at this in Ephesians chapter 2. Even the faith we believe with comes from him. So Peter explains it was the faith that is through Jesus is what restored the man's health. It was this Jesus, the author of life, the holy and righteous one, the servant of God who had healed him. As I listened to, to Peter's sermon this week, I read through it and just thought about it. I couldn't get over the fact that this man who had known Christ had to make Christ known. The entirety of Peter's life was centered on the Savior. And he had to speak it. He had to tell people about Jesus. In verse 15, he, he's, he's sure to tell us, we are witnesses of this. Peter's saying, I, I'm the first in line, a long line of witnesses 
the historicity of the person and work of Jesus, the reliability of the cross and the resurrection, the truthfulness and veracity of it all is central to our faith and central to Christian preaching. We didn't just make this up. We wouldn't have, we couldn't have. But we stand in this long line of people, the first who saw it with their own eyes, we who see by the eyes of faith on the witness passed down to us, But Peter's eyes saw him die. And Peter's eyes saw him live again. And it reminded me of an Andrew Peterson song that says, I I know it sounds crazy, but I know what I saw when the sun came up on the brightest day from the darkest night of all. I saw the man die. They laid him in the tomb. And I know because I saw it with my own two eyes when he stepped into the room. What he's getting on about and what each of us who have known salvation in Jesus' name must be on about is holding out who Jesus is so that others might know him and love him. I want you to see the glory of Christ. And I want to see it. And finally, we come to the gospel of repentance. Peter doesn't miss the opportunity in the sermon to offer a gospel call. Yet, you'll notice that the good news of how a sinner can be made right with God, and that's at the heart of this sermon. How can sinners be made right with God? That's what he's telling us. But this invitation doesn't come at the place we are most used to seeing it. The call to repentance is not at the very end of the sermon as the pianist plays and the choir sings, I surrender all, and the preacher says, won't you come? No, you don't need any of that. You just need to see the glory of Christ. And you don't need to delay. In the middle of the sermon, he invites, and I don't want you to miss this, he commands people to repent of their sin and turn to Christ. The call to repent and believe is not a divine suggestion, it's a command. They've heard who God is. They've heard the list of their offenses read publicly before God and everyone. They've been told of the person and work of Jesus. They've even seen the power of Christ at work in this man's life. But without this part of the sermon, these men and women and children wouldn't know how to be made right with God. So if you walked in and you think, how do I be made right with God? He tells us, repent and turn back to God. The verb signifies the act of turning away from one's former life, from the way that you were living, especially from the worship of idols, and now to a new way of life based on faith and obedience to God. And so... And so must you. If you want to be made right with God, you must repent of your sin and turn to the true and living God. Simply asking him, 
forgive me. If you're at the end of yourself, even in this moment, collapse into the grace and mercy of Jesus that is available to you right now. And you'll know salvation in Christ. You'll know forgiveness of your sin. You'll finally rest on the inside and find refreshment that comes only through Christ. You must turn from the way that you've been living and turn to the only one who can give life. He is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. As we come to a close, I want to revisit the question I asked from earlier. How do we ensure Christ remains the center of our life together? Well, you've got to sort that out on your own. But that answer wouldn't do. So let me give you a few things. We keep Christ at the center by keeping each of our gaze and our gaze collectively fixed on him. We keep Jesus as the theme of our preaching and the melody of our songs and the center of our community and the person and to whom and through whom we pray. What about practically? What do we do about that practically? Well, we go back to this and other passages of Scripture that teach us how how not only to talk to our unconverted friends and family members, but how to speak of Christ to one another. This teaches us even how to preach the gospel to ourselves. If you heard that phrase, well, what does that mean? Well, it's laid out here for us. We begin by speaking of God, the God who is the creator and sustainer of all things. And then we acknowledge with honesty and with humility the gravity of sin in our lives. We come before Christ asking to be cleansed, to be renewed. We speak of the glories of Christ and we're mindful of knowing and growing in and following the biblical Jesus. And, And we respond to him together. We continually turn from our sin to him walking in obedience to his word, calling others to join us in this worshiping of Jesus Christ with the entirety of our lives. That's what a community that is centered on the person and work of Christ looks like. This is more than just a sermon, a Christ-centered sermon. It teaches us how to live Christ-centered lives together as the people of God, whom he loved so much he shed his own blood. Let's pray. Father, thank you that in your word is a sermon manuscript that points us to who you are, that addresses our greatest need, that exalts Jesus and teaches us how to respond rightly to it. Let your Holy Spirit breathe through these words, breathe through this page of of Holy Scripture bringing life to us. I pray you would grant the gift of faith in this room, that you would pour out your salvation on a new son, a new daughter, even in this moment. And I ask all of this in the 
saving name of the author of life, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org. 